Well, we are starting our new series in Genesis, finally. Uh, excited about this. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1-1, and it should be on page 1. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it begins with reminding us of who you are, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word this afternoon, as we kick off this series in Genesis, that we would be reminded of of who you are as our creator, as the covenant-keeping God who is faithful to his people even when we are unfaithful. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, so there's a handout, which I don't normally do sermon outlines, but I did one this week uh, because wanted to give you a little bit of an outline of, we're kind of got some different headings and things that I think will be helpful to jot down some notes if you're a note taker. If you're not, that's totally fine. You don't need to do that, but that is on the, the Genesis 1-1 outline, so we'll follow that pretty closely. And then on the back side, there is a list of recommended resources and then a bibliography. So uh, I created a, a folder on Google Drive. So if you go to that link there, you can get to that folder. I, I have some articles that are on there. It's in a Genesis folder. And this, this is actually on there, this sheet. And then um, some articles. Most of them are about Genesis 1 and 2 and creation, things like that. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And then uh, that folder will also be uh, available, and we'll, we'll get a link on our website to uh, eventually and have a resources kind of link there. Um, we'll have other stuff on there, so I'll keep you posted on that in the, in the future. Um, some recommended resources that, that are on here that under the Genesis resources, kind of that first heading there. Uh, the Bible Project videos on YouTube. I don't know if any of you guys have seen these videos yet. The Bible Project videos, they're overviews of books of the Bible. They're awesome. They're so good. Um, the Genesis 1 to 11 one, I would encourage you to go and look at that. It's like seven minutes long. Just gives a great overview of what's happening in the first 11 chapters. And then there's one on chapters 12 to 52, but 12 to 50 also, not 52. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. Um, ESV Study Bible, if you own an ESV Study Bible, uh, the ESV Study Bible Introduction to Genesis is also a great resource. I'd encourage you to, to spend some time looking at that. And then these just came. Yeah, I ordered these with uh, the other booklets. Is Jesus in the Old Testament? Uh, so this, we're going to be talking a lot through this Genesis series about how the Old Testament, you know, in general and uh, Genesis, in particular, points to Christ. Um, so this will be a helpful... These are on the back table back there. There's, I think there's 10 of them. So 
You can take that. If you want to keep it, it's yours to keep. You, if you want to write in it and take notes, you can do that. If you want to take it and read it and bring it back, uh, you can do that also so other people can use them. If we run out, we can order more. Uh, so that's a good resource as we're thinking about Genesis and how it points to Christ. And then uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapters 1 through 7, and then the Shorter Catechism, questions 1 through 20, are going to deal with a lot of the topics that we're going to be talking about here, especially uh, in chapters 1 to 3 um, over these next few weeks. All right, and then we'll, we'll talk about those other books later. And then there is a bibliography there if you're kind of curious, like, where I'm getting a lot of my information as I'm studying and preparing. All right, well, I want you to imagine uh, going to visit some friends. Uh, You go to their house for dinner, and you sit down after dinner, and they pop on a a show that they've been watching, and they're they're in season five of this show. And they're like, oh, you got to see this. This is like the greatest show ever. And and you sit down, and you start watching this show with them, and you're just like, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I don't know who these people are. I don't have any, I don't have any context for, for these relationships that are going on. I don't know, like, they speak this weird accent, and I don't know where this place even is. Um, so you start asking them questions. You're like, okay, well, who, you know, who is this person, and how are they related to this person, and why, you know, why are these people fighting? And you're just like, I don't, I, this doesn't make any sense to me. Well, I actually had a similar uh, experience kind of happen to me uh, when, when we lived in China. Uh, Phil and Danielle, Lindsay's um, brother Phil and his wife Danielle, they lived with us for about a year. And in the evenings, oftentimes, Lindsay and Danielle would be watching Downton Abbey. And uh, Phil and I were like, you know, doing stuff like playing darts and playing card games and all that stuff. And we were always making fun of Downton Abbey. We're like, oh, we're going to do manly things. We're not going to watch Downton Abbey. Like, so we didn't watch Downton Abbey. And then we moved back to the States, and uh, we were living in Menasha. And one night, Lindsay was watching Downton Abbey. It was the final show of season five. And I was in the kitchen, and she was watching it, and I could hear what was going on. So I went and finally, you know sat down and said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. And I was immediately hooked. And I was like, this, this is awesome. All, there's all these things going on. And, and this, just this family, the, the Crowley family, and this aristocratic British family, and trying to figure out all these dynamics of what was going on. And you, know, you got the family upstairs doing their thing, right? And there's all this drama going on. And then you got the servants downstairs. And you know, I was like pausing it every like two minutes. I'm like, okay, explain, you know, who are these people and why are all these things going on? And so, you know, got, it was the last episode of season five. And then I was like, I can't wait to watch season six. And we just plowed through season six. But uh, I, you know, I, I needed answers to those questions. I was, I was lost in this story because I jumped in late and I had no idea what was going on. And I, need to get it, I needed to get an idea so that I could, I could understand what was going on in the story and that I could embrace the story and really um, be engaged in it. I think we find ourselves today in a world with many competing narratives that are trying to answer some of the deepest questions of life. Why are we here? Is there meaning and purpose amidst the chaos around us? Is there a God? If so, can we know him? And has he revealed himself to us? Those are questions that people are answering. Those are really important questions. 
Just like the ancient Israelites, we find ourselves surrounded by ideas and worldviews that challenge the things that we believe and that we hold to be true, true about God, true about the world, and true about ourselves. And as Christians living in this contemporary world, we often feel the feeling of disorientation, of being uprooted and disconnected from the historic Christian faith, especially when it comes to understanding how the New Testament and the Old Testament fit together. When I was a new believer, someone recommended to me to read the Gospel of John, uh, which I think is a great recommendation. I think it's a good place uh, for a new Christian to start. And sometimes the advice is, well, just skip the Old Testament, right? Don't read the Old Testament because it's, it's too hard to understand. Uh, there's a lot of just like, there's all these names and genealogies and history and laws, and it's it's too hard to understand. But we can't just jump right into the middle of the story. We can't just talk to people about this Savior, this Redeemer who came, and not understand why he had to come. Not understand who this God is that we are claiming to love and claiming to worship. So, just like my example of, of diving into the, to the show in the middle of season five... We can't just say, oh, just, just open up the New Testament and start reading one of the Gospels, and that's how we learn about the Christian faith. We need to go back to the beginning. We need to understand how it all started and why it all started. And interestingly, I don't think the Gospel writers themselves will let us start in the Gospels. I'm going to make this argument from two different, there's more, but I'm going to make my argument from two different Gospels. How does John 1.1 start out? In the beginning. In the beginning. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, starts out with the exact same words. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, N-R-K, John 1.1, in the beginning, N-R-K. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word, right? So both testaments are starting off with the same wording there. But if you are familiar with the order of the Gospels, uh, John is not the first gospel that we have in the New Testament. Matthew is the first gospel that we have in the Old Testament. How does the book of Matthew start off? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew will not even let us get away from the Old Testament. He's pointing us back. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the New Testament starts off, the book of the genealogy... Two words here, two Greek words, biblos and genesis, where we get the word genesis. Biblos genesis is the book of the genealogy. So biblos is the Greek word for book. It's where we get our English word Bible from. So the book of biblos genesis, genesis. It's the word that's translated in the, in the Old Testament and translated into the Greek genesis, genesis which means Genesis, genealogy, uh, it means 
birth or origin. It's, it's the beginning of things. It's the record of things. So Genesis, the very name itself, comes from this word. And it means Genesis is the book of origins. So we're introduced in Genesis to many different origins. And we're going to see those over the next several weeks. First, we're going to see the origins of the universe in the first couple chapters. We're going to see the origin of humans. We're going to see the origin of the people of God and the nation of Israel. Those things are are very clear to us. Uh, We're introduced to God, who has no origin. And we're also introduced to evil. And evil, we don't, this is one of those mysteries of, we, that we wrestle with philosophically, right? The origin of evil. Uh, we know, we, we read about Adam and Eve being tempted. We have some clues and some other passages in scripture. But ultimately, we can't pinpoint and say, this is exactly how and why evil is and, and it exists, okay? So there's a lot of origins that are happening in Genesis, so, if you're following along here, um, and you're on those notes, so the meaning, uh, the meaning was the, the word Genesis, that it's beginnings. And then authorship is the next thing we're going to look at. I'm going to argue that Moses was the author of Genesis, um, not just because the conservative scholars make better arguments than all of the liberal scholars who have all of their crazy theories about all these different people who compiled the book of Genesis, but I, because I think Jesus argued that Moses was the author of Genesis. Uh, Luke chapter 24, Road to Emmaus, Jesus walking with his disciples after the resurrection, and they're, they're saying, but haven't you heard about all these things that have been going on? And, and they don't recognize who he is. And then he opens their eyes. And it says in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. So Jesus went all the way back to Moses and the prophets. Basically, the Old Testament, right? Jesus went back to the Old Testament and showed how all of those things pointed to him. All the scriptures were pointing to him. So Jesus is saying, in essence, Moses wrote Genesis. And Moses, we, contrib- or we attribute Mosaic authorship to the entire Pentateuch, which is the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. In another place, John chapter 5, the religious leaders are seeking to kill Jesus for healing a man on the Sabbath day. And here's how Jesus reacts and confronts them. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus is equating the authority of Moses' writings, the authority of the first five books of the Old Testament, with his own words. He's saying, if you would have believed what Moses said, said because he wrote about me, then you would believe me. 
What I'm telling you is the same thing that he was telling you. He's saying that the one who was in the beginning, remember John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The one who was in the beginning, Jesus himself, he's saying that he is the one who was written about by Moses when Moses wrote about the beginning. Moses was writing about him. So that one, um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, talking about authorship. You can go read all of these scholarly theories, and it's, I honestly skipped over most of it in the commentaries because I've, I've heard it all before. There's some interesting things, but um, I think Moses wrote Genesis. We'll leave it at that. The next thing is audience. Uh, Again, this is something, especially when we're, when we're looking back this far uh, at the Old Testament, we need to look at the audience in three different levels. Uh, the first level of the audiences would be the original people who the story is about. Um, obviously, Moses wasn't there when all of these things were happening, so he's writing accounts of what has already happened. But the events that are happening, that's the original audience of the story. That's the people who were involved and who God was speaking to and revealing himself to. They're the ones who passed down the oral history. They're the ones who passed down writings that would have eventually been compiled and and put together by Moses. That's the first level. Second level would be the original readers of Moses' writings. After all 50 chapters of, of Genesis would have been finished, it would have been the people of Israel who would have read this and looked back and said, this is our story. This is who we are. This is how we came to be. This is, this is how God has worked among us. And then the third level is, is kind of everyone after that. It's us sitting here today as Christians in the 21st century. Because this is our story too. This is not just their story thousands of years ago. This is our story too. It is the story of our God. It's his story. It's history. It's true. This is not just an ancient myth that was written to make people feel good. We'll talk about this in the next couple weeks when we talk about the creation story and how it relates to, to different stories that were written around those times. And there's some interesting differences. There were ancient myths. There were ancient stories about creation and flood and all these things. But this is, this is different. It's not myth. It's history. It's written to explain to people who God is. It's written to teach people about who they are in light of who God is. And it's mostly narrative. It's mostly narrative history in Genesis. So it is a story. It tells the story of a people and it has a structure, and it has themes in it. So I want us to consider the structure, and the themes, and then the approach of Genesis. First of all, the structure. There's kind of two different structures in Genesis. There's a literary structure, and then there's a theological structure. We'll look at the literary structure first, and it kind of happens on, on two levels. One is kind of the macro level, if you want to make a big outline of Genesis Uh, Most people break it down into two parts, some into three, but the first section, the first big literary section is what we call primeval history, chapters 1 to 11. So some of the big headlines in there are creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel. Those are some of the big popular stories in the first 11 chapters. 
And then the second section is the history of the patriarchs. So this is chapters 12 through 50. It's the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. It's the family history. It's the story. It's the nuts and bolts of what we need to know to be able to follow this narrative throughout the rest of the Old Testament and then into the New Testament. Remember again, Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We read that and we, we need to say, well, what, why is that important? The son of Abraham. Why would Jesus be called the son of Abraham and why does that matter? We need to look back to those stories and we'll, we'll get into all that. So if, if it's broken down into three sections, uh, some people divide uh, 12 through 50 into two parts. So 12 to 36 would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then 37 to 50 would be primarily focused on Joseph and his story. Just to give you a little timeline of, of how we're going to approach this and attack this, um, February through May, we're going to take 17 weeks to go through chapters 1 to 22. And then in the summer, we're going to be taking a break. We're going to be doing a sermon, combined sermon series with uh, Emmaus Road, and we will be doing the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, on the weeks that we do that, I will be... For example, one week I will preach at Emmaus Road in the morning and then here in the afternoon and then maybe the following week Dan will preach there in the morning and then down here in the afternoon. So um, that's how we're going to do that. So looking forward to that. But we're going to get through, try to get through the first 22 chapters of Genesis up until then. And then in the fall we'll pick back up and try to finish 23 through chapters through uh, 50 in about another 17 weeks. So we're not going to cover every chapter and verse in Genesis. Um, that would be very difficult, and it would probably take many years, so we're not going to do that. We're going to finish Genesis in less than a year. Uh, but we are going to look at a lot of the main themes and a lot of the storylines. And so kind of setting that foundation now is really important so we can kind of have an idea of, of those themes that we're going we're gonna to get to. Another literary structure that's in Genesis, and this one is really interesting, it's kind of one of those hidden things um, in the text. It's, it's there, but it's not obvious. And I think as, as we read, especially in the first 11 chapters, there's a lot of names and genealogies, and it's kind of easy to just glance over these things. But there are 11 times throughout the book of Genesis where the, the Hebrew word toledot occurs, and it's the word generations. So this is the, the Hebrew word toledot gets translated into the Greek as genesis, and so these, the, there's, again, this is how this is all connected. You get to the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That word is connected back to the Greek word toledot, which structures the whole book of Genesis. So we have 11 different times in the book of Genesis where it's kind of like a, a section heading. And it begins with words like this. Uh, Genesis 2.4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So we have Genesis 1.1 to 2.3, which we'll be covering next week, the creation account. And then after that, it kind of starts into this, uh, this structure using this toledot word where the generations are explained. The second use, we're not going to, don't worry, we're not going to go through all 11 of them. You can look this up if you want to. But the second use, I think, is very interesting. It's Genesis 5.1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Does that language sound familiar? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew 1.1. Genesis 5.1 says, 
the book of the generations of Adam. And it's the exact same wording. And a lot of, obviously, connections between Adam and Christ, right? We'll get into to some of those things. But just there's some really interesting things, the way Genesis is structured there, and this idea about generations and genealogies. And again, I think that, that reminder for us is that Genesis is focusing on these generations. It's focusing on people. It is primarily a story about people, about God's people. So structure from a literary standpoint, that's, that's the structure. Uh, Genesis also has a theological structure. And there are a few different ways we can look at this. One of my favorite ways to talk about the structure is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Uh, we've talked about this in, in some other things, especially in Ephesians. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We see the first three of those, creation, fall, and then the promise of redemption in the first three chapters of the Bible. And then that, that story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation as we look forward, those things all play out throughout the rest of the Bible. So it's, it's so important if we're going to talk about, you know, as we're looking at our catechism questions, we're getting into the questions about who is the Redeemer. We can't just we can't just start in the New Testament and say, oh, here's this Redeemer. we got to go back and, well, why do we need to be redeemed? Like, what happened that we needed to be redeemed? So that creation, fall, redemption, consummation story is that theological structure is very important. Another way we could structure it is kind of more of like a systematic theology approach. We could look at God, man, sin, and salvation. And those, there's a lot of overlap between the creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and God, man, sin, salvation. Those are a couple approaches we could take. Another huge overarching uh, theme that we especially love as Presbyterians is the theme of the covenant. Uh, God and making covenants with his people. Uh, covenant theology is something that we talk a lot about. And so we are going to be spending a lot of time, especially uh, when we get to chapter 12, talking about the covenant with Abraham and how that is going to point us forward to Christ, but just the idea of covenant is that God enters into a relationship with his people, that he makes himself known, and and they are, God's people are in a relationship with him. So a lot of the things, a lot of these themes that we're going to see are, are, are really tied into covenant, so I would encourage you to... Um, Explore that if you're if that's kind of new to you, uh, kind of dig into to covenant theology a little bit, and then some of the themes that we're going to see kind of narrow down a little bit with that. You know, we got that big kind of overarching creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Some of the themes that we're going to see then uh, we see blessing and cursing. That's a, a big theme that plays out in throughout Genesis: blessing and cursing, and good versus evil. Uh, we see that happening in the family dynamics. Uh, you might be thinking of some of the stories in Genesis about certain people being blessed and certain people being cursed. We're going to get into all that. Uh, and then God's relationship with his chosen people, different promises of, of blessing and cursing of good and evil. Some of the blessings that we see, creation, Sabbath, land, and seed, or descendants. So this idea of land and, and seed, land and descendants, that's a big theme throughout Genesis. So those are, those are blessings. And then cursing that we see. We see banishment from the garden. Uh, in chapter 3, Adam and Eve are, are kicked out of the garden. So there's a, there's a cursing that comes. 
Uh, we see different judgments that come, some of them catastrophic, like the flood. The whole earth is cursed. The whole earth is judged by God. And then we see elements of cursing with the story of, of Babel, the Tower of Babel, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. And again, those things are going to kind of play out throughout the rest of the book. There's themes of barrenness and family brokenness that are going to occur over and over. So as you, and I would encourage you, you know, I, I know if, if you're like doing a Bible reading plan that you started at the beginning of the year, you're probably either like almost done with Genesis or, or you may have already finished Genesis. You may have just read through it. Uh, but if you haven't done that yet and you're kind of like, I don't really know what I should be reading, start reading Genesis. Um, you know, read, read a chapter a day for the next uh, 50 days and just and get into the story so you can kind of follow along with, with where we're going. I would encourage you. Uh, there's some, some really good stuff there. Well, if you're feeling overwhelmed by all that information, that's okay. Uh, I feel a little overwhelmed too. It's a lot of, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of material. Uh, 50 chapters is a lot, um, but we're going we're gonna to try to take it slow. Um, kids, I have a question for you that you can help us. Have you ever had someone ask you the question, how do you eat an elephant? <laughs> Do you guys know? How do you, adults, don't answer yet. Come on, kids. One bite at a time. Did your dad tell you? It's okay. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And Genesis kind of feels like a big elephant, doesn't it? But um, we are going to, we're going to go at it one bite at a time. Um, I want to read from... The, uh, from a commentary by Gordon Wenham. Gordon Wenham is probably one of the top scholars on the first five books of the Bible. And uh, here's what he says in his preface to his Genesis commentary. He said, Commenting on Genesis, I have found my mood oscillating between elation and despair. I have been elated at the privilege of writing a commentary on such a central biblical text. I have been driven to despair by the impossibility of doing it justice, let alone dealing adequately with all that others have written about it. So if Gordon Wenham feels overwhelmed, I think we're okay to feel a little overwhelmed. Um, But yeah, it's okay. Uh, There's, there is a lot there and, but we're going to, we're going to trust the Lord and we're just going to try to go step by step uh, through this and kind of, again, hit on some of the, some of the big things. And then at the end of uh, the introduction to his commentary, I want to read this. This is, this is his uh, Genesis 1 through 15, chapter 1 through 15 commentary. But at the end of his introduction, he has a section called Genesis 1 through 11 and modern thought. So basically, why is this important today? Like, why do we need to be studying Genesis today? Why does this story about these people who lived thousands of years ago even matter today in our culture, in our church? I love what he says here, and this is kind of going to set the tone for for the rest that we're going to look at. He says, If it is correct to view Genesis 1 through 11 as an inspired retelling of ancient Oriental traditions, about the origins of the world with a view to presenting the nature of the true God as one omnipotent, omniscient, and good, as opposed to the fallible, capricious, weak deities who populated the rest of the ancient world. 
If further, it is concerned to show that humanity is central in the divine plan, not an afterthought. If finally, it wants to show that man's plight is the product of his own disobedience and indeed is bound to worsen without divine intervention, Genesis 1-11 through is setting out a picture of the world that is at odds both with the polytheist, polytheistic optimism of ancient Mesopotamia and the humanistic secularism of the modern world. Genesis is thus a fundamental challenge to the ideologies of civilized men and women, past and present, who like to suppose their own efforts will ultimately suffice to save them. Genesis 1-11 to declares that mankind is without hope if individuals are without God. Human society will disintegrate where divine law is not respected and divine mercy not implored. Yet Genesis, so pessimistic about mankind without God, is fundamentally optimistic. Precisely because God created men and women in his own image and disclosed his ideal for humanity at the beginning of time. And through Noah's obedience and his sacrifice, mankind's future was secured. And in the promise to the patriarchs, the ultimate fulfillment of the creator's ideals for humanity is guaranteed. These, then, are the overriding concerns of Genesis. It is important to bear them in mind in studying its details. Though historical and scientific questions may be uppermost in our minds as we approach the text, listen, I'm I'm going to reread this. This is really important as we start to dive into the next few weeks. Though historical and scientific questions may be uppermost in our minds as we approach the text, it is doubtful whether they were in the writer's mind, and we should therefore be cautious about looking for answers to questions he was not concerned with. Genesis is primarily about God's character and his purposes for sinful mankind. Genesis is primarily about God's character and his purposes for sinful mankind. Let us be aware of allowing our interest to divert us from the central thrust of the book so that we miss what the Lord, our creator and redeemer, is saying to us. I'm going to keep harping on that, especially over the next few weeks, okay? I think that's really important. We don't go to Genesis to try to combat certain things, even though certain things need to be combated. We go to Genesis to see how God is speaking, how God is revealing himself, how God is telling us about who he is. We'll talk more about those things. So if you look on your insert there on the bottom, had God's character and God's purposes for sinful mankind. Those are the last two sections we're going to look at here. First of all, God's character. In the beginning... Right? In the beginning, God is eternal. He's the uncreated creator of all creation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Scripture attests to this everywhere. Deuteronomy 33 27, Psalm 90 1 and 2, Isaiah 40 28, and Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 21. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
He's eternal. God is self-existent. There is no cause and effect. We cannot say, where did, who created God? Where did God come from? He is. That's what the divine name Yahweh means. I am who I am. God is. He is self-existent. God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. He has no lack. God was not sitting in heaven twiddling his thumbs and saying, well, I'm bored and, and I'm, I have nothing to do, so maybe I'll just create some people. There was no need. There was no lack that God had. Our question, question number two in the New City Catechism, which is very similar to the question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question two was, what is God? And the answer, God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. This is like the catchiest kid tune. I love that one. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal infinite and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and by his will. The creator and sustainer. If you want to read more about this, I would encourage you. uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith, again, you can find that online. Chapters 2 through 5 talk about who God is, and especially uh, being God being creator and talking about his providence, sustaining all things. Very rich uh, chapters there in the confession. Who is God? It is the question that we are confronted with in the very first verse of the Bible, and it is one that we must seek to answer. Uh, there are so many great resources. Obviously, the Bible. <laughs> Read your Bibles if you want to know more about who God is. Uh, there are also many great books. I'm going to recommend a few of them. Um, and some are small. It doesn't mean they're not dense. Uh, the Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer is a small book, but it's very, very dense. A uh, good book about the attributes of God. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, we've recommended that one uh, a few weeks ago, so I'll just recommend that again. And then if you're really feeling nerdy and you have a ton of time on your hands, uh, The Doctrine of God by John Frame, uh, just, it's going to answer any question you have about God's attributes, God's character. And if you want to borrow that, um, I wouldn't like, just go out and buy it if you're not going to read the whole thing. But uh, if you want to borrow that, let me know. Um, and that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's, there are so many good things out there, good resources about God's attributes and God's character and So we need to know our God. We need to know who he is. We need to know him as he has revealed himself to us. And so I'd encourage you in your pursuit of that. And kind of back to the, you know, eating the elephant thing. One final word. God is inexhaustible. God is inexhaustible. You know, we we talk in our, our day and age, we worry about using up natural resources, right? We worry about running out of fuel. Or we, we talk about um, you know, trying to accomplish our, our plans or do something. We say, I've exhausted all my options. I've tried everything, right? We, we use these words. But we could study for a lifetime. I could read those books and memorize every word. 
I could memorize every word of the Bible, and we would still never fully exhaust, never fully comprehend all that God is. I think this is why Paul writes in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Paul just stood in awe of who God was and how majestic he was. So as we go through Genesis, my prayer for us is not only that we will know our Bibles better, though that is one of my main prayers for us, but that we will know the God who has created us and so graciously revealed himself to us in his word. Will you join with me in praying that prayer, that we will know him better? That when we feel tempted and overwhelmed at work or in school or at home, that we will seek to know God more intimately? That the covenant faithfulness that we see towards his people in Genesis, that that will not be something that we just look back and say, oh, that's something God did for his people thousands of years ago but that we would trust that he would still show that same faithfulness to us right here in 2018. Let's pray to that end. Which leads into the last thing that I want to mention here, the second point from Wenham, God's purposes for sinful mankind. His purposes for sinful mankind He said Genesis is primarily about God's character, his purposes for sinful mankind. It's all about Jesus, right? We can't read Genesis and miss that it's pointing to Jesus, miss that the whole thing is about him. His purposes to to save us, to unite us to Christ, to raise us up, and to make us more like Christ. But just as I read in the kind of the warning from, from Wenham that we don't go to Genesis to kind of answer to, for our own purposes, we also don't want to take the, you know, Jesus is hiding behind every bush in the Old Testament kind of approach. Uh, we don't want to just go and pick out a story and be like, oh, this is like, this story is just about Jesus, and then this story is about Jesus, and this story is about Jesus. We need to be careful that we don't do that. Um, we're, one of my, my goals, one of my hopes is that we would see how the whole Old Testament, and especially Genesis, points us uh, to Jesus. But we need to do that, I think, in a particular way. A uh, really good quote from uh, Michael Horton, who's a seminary professor. And uh, this is in a, in a commentary by Meredith Klein, who was also uh, a seminary professor. And this is kind of interesting, his his grandson found these notes that he had on Genesis uh, tucked away in some folder like 20 years ago he wrote this and his grandson just found it and just published it a couple years ago. So uh, it's, it's good stuff. But Horton in the, in the foreword, he's talking about how the, the focus of this commentary is on the unfolding plan of redemption that we see in Genesis. And then he says, the emphasis is not merely on how a person place or thing in the Old Testament represents Jesus directly, but on how each episode fits in the developing plot line leading to the Messiah from the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. 
This Christocentric focus is what makes this commentary so personally edifying as well as illuminating. It is God's initiative in saving grace that keeps history moving even when the covenant partner seems to bring it all to a standstill by disobedience and unbelief. Brothers and sisters, as the church of Christ, we are that covenant partner that God has sovereignly and graciously redeemed. We are called to believe and obey God as a loving response to his mercy and his grace that has been poured out on us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. In place for our sins, for our forgiveness, and then in his glorious resurrection we are given new life and we are given peace with God and with each other. So as we journey through Genesis, let us not lose sight of that. Let us not lose sight of the faithfulness of our covenant God who has worked through ages and generations in his people and we are an extension of that. We are a continuation of that work and we are a part of God's people. So let us celebrate that. Let us remember, let us be reminded of who God is as our creator and our sustainer and our redeemer. As we come this afternoon to the table, we are reminded of those things. We're reminded that God is our creator. He's the creator of everything. He's the reason why we make bread and that we have wine to drink. It all comes from him. And he's the sustainer of all things. So as we prepare to come to this table, we're reminded this is a picture of of how bread and wine sustain our bodies physically. But it's not just physically that we're fed. We're also fed spiritually in the supper. And then we're pointed, obviously, to our Redeemer. That the bread is the picture of Christ's body that was broken for us on the cross. That the blood is the picture of his wine, of of his blood The wine is the picture of his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to read a prayer from the Valley of Vision. We talked last week about written prayers, how um, there's value in, in reading written prayers. And this is a prayer called the Lord's Supper from the Valley of Vision. So as we prepare our hearts to come to the table... I want to pray this prayer. You just take time to listen, prepare your hearts. And um, before I read this, I just want to remind us again that this prayer.